ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Sarah Kendrew! So is this, this is working? Yep. Uh, yes, I'm Sarah Kendrew. I'm an astronomer here at, uh, in the uh, physics department uh, at the university here in Oxford. And uh, I'm going to talk to you today about the, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is uh, a project that I've been working on for uh, a number of years. So if I show you this picture, it probably doesn't mean an awful lot to you. Um, this is James Webb. And when a good decade ago now, NASA announced that they were going to uh, name their flagship observatory for the future after this man, there were, you know, among the astronomers, there were quite a few... Uh, you know, raised eyebrows, because James Webb was a politician and a bureaucrat, basically. He was the second administrator of NASA uh, in the 1960s, and he was a real kind of career politician. So, um, but, so he was appointed uh, by President Kennedy, and uh, he deliberately really wanted like a kind of a politician and a strong personality in charge of NASA. Um, and like I said, sort of because he's not a scientist, you know, within, within the science community, he doesn't, you know, pull a huge amount of weight, but um, if I show you this, then that gives you a bit more of a hint about what James Webb actually did. So he was the administrator for NASA in the 1960s, and he basically led the um, early years of the Apollo space program, and he basically oversaw uh, the first uh, unmanned Apollo space missions. And he retired just before um, the, the actual moon landing. And so he was kind of a really powerful person and he was a big supporter of the space program and so he was incredibly influential in making that happen and as you all know that was basically the Apollo space, pro space program was a, a hugely influential kind of, uh, kind of program for people getting into science and engineering all around the world uh, and he was described by uh, one of his colleagues later on that you know he was really kind of instrumental in uh, turning imagination into reality and I kind of like that because that's sort of the business that we're in in astrophysics, and especially those of us who build technology. Um, so that's very nice. Um, just want to say as well, please, uh, I know there's like Q&A at the end, but if I'm not coherent enough or you have questions, just please just shout out. I don't mind. So here's just some basic facts about the James Webb Space Telescope. So like I said, it is basically the future uh, space observatory for the entire for the entire world for astrophysics, um, it started off, you know, years and years ago in the mid 1990s. The first idea of uh, of, of a new uh, space telescope beyond Hubble, um, and it, it, originally it was known as the Next Generation Space Telescope, and it was renamed after James Webb in 2002. And the idea was really to build on the success of the Hubble Space Telescope, and to kind of extend Hubble's capabilities in the sort of the areas where it had where it was pushing the most in, uh, in, into our understanding. Um, James Webb is a partnership between uh, NASA, uh, so the American Space Agency, uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, and CSA, who is the Canadian Space Agency. So often Hubble and James Webb uh, get referred to as big NASA missions, but you know it's important to remember that this is actually a big international project, that here in Europe we have a huge stake in as well, and from Canada uh, the same. Uh, and we are currently on track for a 2018 launch date. And that is still confirmed. I get asked about that all the time, but we are still on track for that. I dug out some, some really early papers for NGST, as it was known then. This is actually a design, a proposed design for the telescope back in 2000. 
So that's when, when there were still lots of different designs being, uh, being discussed. Uh, and it's kind, of, it's kind of quaint. It looks sort of a bit funny. Um, but what was amazing is that actually sort of the main components, and I've kind of had to retype the labels because they weren't very clear in the image, but the main components are actually still have the same name and you know, the basic components are all kind of there. I thought that was quite neat. But of course, the design has evolved a huge deal since then. Um, and so this, the telescope will, in the end, look like this. And a lot of these components already exist and are, we already have lots of hardware. Um, so this is, what, this is what it's going to look like. And I've labeled, again, these sort of key components. Uh, I'll be coming back to those uh, a bit later on as well. So the gold hexagons, you can see that's the primary mirror of the telescope with the secondary mirror kind of you know, balanced out on this sort of tri um, tripod out in front. Um, you've got these, these big sheets, so those are sun shields to shield the telescope from sunlight. Uh, and bolted on the back of that is sort of the instrumentation module and, and lots of kind of communication antennae and solar panels and so. But to kind of uh, see a bit, you know, why James Webb looks like this and why it was built and desi designed and built the way that it is, uh, we have to go back a little bit and have a look at the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, you've probably heard about the Hubble Space Telescope and if in the last 20 years you have seen any pictures of galaxies or stars or beautiful nebulae, it's quite likely that these would have come from the Hubble Space Telescope. It's really been a huge, huge player in, in astrophysics, but also just in kind of the public's view uh, of the universe. So in Hubble's early days, obviously there's a lot to talk about, but uh, here's a nice picture of uh, the Space Shuttle Discovery launching Hubble Space Telescope um, in, into a low Earth orbit. That was back in 1990. Um, and at that point, it had sort of five instruments on board, uh, it didn't all go very smoothly for Hubble at the early, in the very early stages. First of all, the launch was quite delayed to begin with. Uh, but then also, when they started with science operations, it was clear that there was a problem with the optics. Uh, and so a hugely uh, adventurous and expensive servicing mission had to be sent up to Hubble to uh, install a kind of a corrector optic to make sure that the images were as sharp as they, you know, they, they needed to be. But that was very successful, and from then on, Hubble has, you know, has produced some absolutely amazing science. Um, some of the highlights, just wanted to talk about some of the highlights that were of Hubble science. This is one of the best known and most spectacular images of Hubble. Actually, there's a series of three of them. The Hubble Deep Field, and then following on from that was the Ultra Deep Field, which I'm showing here, and then very recently, a couple of years ago, um, there, a new image was released it's called the extreme deep field and these are the kind of deepest most sensitive um, some of the deepest and most sensitive images that have ever been produced uh, in astronomy so what was amazing about this so astronomers proposed to observe with Hubble a blank portion of the sky uh, and that's kind of a crazy thing to propose to do with a telescope because, you know, you're supposed to actually be looking at something and testing some kind of theory or something like that. Um, so the proposal was initially rejected, but they then, got given, uh, they then got given some time under a sort of special program anyway for high-risk science. And so they pointed Hubble at basically sort of an empty sky. It's a, tiny, it's a tiny fraction. It's like about two arc minutes on the sky, which is, you know, less than a tenth of the, diam of the diameter of the full moon on the sky. Um, and, and, and they stared at this blank bit of sky for, for a, you know, a few days, I think. It was a long observation, but it ended up with a, a, an image like this. And so everything you can see, apart from 
you know, little things with spikes coming out of them. There's a few of those. Everything you can see is a galaxy. And so we knew until then that there were other galaxies in the universe, but it wasn't until we produced an image like this that we realized, like, how many, how many galaxies there actually are, you know, because everything, you know, everything as far as you can see, and there's lots of tiny faint things in there that you can't see on this image, you know, they're all external galaxies. So this was really like a massive step forward for our understanding of, you know, for not just how many galaxies there are in the universe, but also all their different shapes and sizes, um, lots of different properties, like an absolute a huge range of different sort of properties and characteristics. And kind of this really kind of accelerated the whole field of uh, galaxy evolution studies, which is now, you know, dominates astrophysics research, really. Uh, it's a hugely important field, and Hubble was completely instrumental in sort of... Uh, making that happen, really. Um, another really important area of science of the past decades is uh, the study of planets outside of our own solar system. So for Hubble, this is you know, actually a very new sort of field because the first, the first kind of confirmed detection of um, a planet around a sun-like star only happened in 1995. So well, you know, a good few years after the launch of Hubble. So this was not something that people really had in mind when they built Hubble. Um, and, uh, but ever since then, ever since we had these first discoveries, and first there was a small trickle of exoplanet discoveries, and then once people realized how to find these things, you know, there was sort of floodgates, and now we know there are thousands of them, um, and probably even millions. Um, one of the fantastic things that we were able to do with Hubble is actually get sort of direct images of some of these planets. So all the, most of the detection techniques that we still have today are very indirect. You find the signature of an extrasolar planet in the light from the parent star. Um, to get an actual image of the planet, like you can see here, so you can, these are observations taken two years apart um, of this of a star. This is Fulmohaut, which is you know, a relatively nearby star. It's about 25, um, 25 parsecs away. Um, so you can actually see that this has sort of moved along an orbit. Um, and just sort of Hubble's really good sensitivity and the instruments it has on board. So this would, to produce this image, they were able to sort of mask out the light from the central star so that you could see the extended structure around it, which would normally just be drowned out by the, the light from the central star. Um, there are arguments about who was the first to make, make a direct image of an extrasolar planet, but it's clear that you know, these such images with Hubble were some of the first direct detections of an extrasolar planet. And this is, you know, exoplanet research is absolutely enormous now. Uh, lots of people work on it, lots of, you know, lots of innovation um, happening there. And so, again, Hubble kind of gave, gave a huge impetus for, um, to, that, to that field. But it's not just those two fields. There are lots of other things. You've seen some of these images, sort of, you know, there's the Orion Nebula, um, studying nearby galaxies, um, over, um, over on that side, these are, two, these are the antennae. These are two galaxies in the process of merging. We also have you know, so beautiful images of the solar system. Um, so Hubble's really kind of pushed the boundaries of astrophysics um, over the entire field. But you know, it's been up there for, you know, almost, for about 25 years almost now. So um, because Hubble was, in a, Hubble was in a low Earth orbit, there have been servicing missions. And a few years ago, we had... The last of these servicing missions, SM4, um, which you know was pushed through before the uh, the space shuttle was kind of finally retired, 
Um, SM4, the servicing mission was fantastic because it was, you know, in the age of the internet, you could basically watch it live on the internet. And I know I, I and many of my colleagues basically did that for, <laughs> just sat there during the day and watched, watched these things happen live. Um, so these servicing missions have given Hubble a fantastic lifetime, but, you know, it's not going to go for another decade. In a few years' time, Hubble will start failing and it won't be repaired anymore. So... It was really t- it's really time to kind of start thinking about the future. So it's time to start thinking about the James <laughs> Webb Space Telescope, which is going to sort of pick up uh, the baton from, from Hubble and keep pushing forward in, in kind of uh, space-based astrophysics. So here's just a couple of um, key figures. So I've mentioned a few of these before. So it's planned for launch in 2018. So it's still a few years away, but it's amazing how close that actually is when you're working on something for several decades. Um, The primary mirror is six and a half meters in diameter. So that's, um, if you look at the collecting area that such a mirror has compared to Hubble, Hubble had a primary mirror of about two and a half meters. So that, in terms of collecting area, that's about a factor of six bigger. So that's a lot more light that's being caught by the telescope. Um, big difference with Hubble is that it's optimized for infrared astronomy, whereas Hubble did a lot of uh, ultraviolet and optical astronomy. And I'll talk a bit more about that, uh, about why that was done and you know, what the advantages of that are. Um, James Webb is also not getting put in an Earth orbit. It's going out to a point called L2, which is the second Lagrangian point, and I'll come back to that in a little bit as well to explain, uh, to explain why that was done. Um, this telescope will be sort of passively cooled to quite low temperatures, which is very important for the infrared. Um, the total cost of the telescope is about um, $8 billion, and the mission lifetime is 5 to 10 years. So this is, you know, just to emphasize, this is the most expensive project in astrophysics ever, um, both, I think, in terms of sort of scope uh, and as well as money. So here's another nice overview. Um, I, showed this, uh, I showed this before. Um, so yeah, I already showed you sort of the key components. You see the primary mirror is there with the, the, the secondary mirror. Um, the sun shields, the sun shields will kind of form, you know, sit between the sun and the telescope to shield it from the light so that it's, you know, keep its kind of sensitivity to these faint astrophysical sources we're interested in. Uh, um, and then kind of on the back of it is the, um, the module that all the instruments are, are bolted onto, plus then the whole set of support hardware, obviously. Um, this telescope is far too big to fit into a rocket, so it'll be launched on an Ariane 5 from Kourou in French Guyana by the European Space Agency. Uh, but of course, it doesn't fit into an Ariane 5 like that. So the telescope will be deployed in space, which is terrifying. Um, there is a video here. It's, it's, it's sort of sped up. Uh, let me see if this plays. But it should give you an idea. So this is how it will get, is going to be like sort of completely folded into the, the launch vehicle. Oh, no. This does work. So you can see, this is the tricky bit where the sun shields fold out. So there's five layers and they're all on top of each other and they have to be rolled out and then they have to be separated. 
And that's about the size of a tennis court, and it's, I don't know, it's like a millimetre. It's not even a millimetre thick. It's sort of these very thin films. And then the secondary mirror folds out. I'm going to show you that again. It speeds up a bit at the end. So then, you know, at the end, you see the, 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 the mirror kind of folds out. This, this arm that holds the secondary mirror will pop out as well um, to put everything in place. The mirror is made of gold-coated beryllium, and it's, like, extremely lightweight. So that's, like, the sun shield separating out now, and then, yeah, there goes the mirror. That, and that needs to all go well, <laughs> is all I will say about that. <laughs> okay, so I said, uh, you know, James Webb is not getting launched into an Earth orbit. Um, it's going into uh, a spot called L2, um, which is, you know, is, is, is shorthand for the, the second Lagrangian point in the Earth-Sun system. So Lagrangian points were named after uh, mathematician Lagrange, uh, who sort of calculated solutions for the, um, in, in sort of three-body problems and so found kind of stable points in the sort of gravity, three-body gravity system. Um, and so these, these different points are shown there. Um, so... The advantage of L2 is that you know the, the the spacecraft can be sort of held there reasonably stably by just by the gravity of the uh, of the Earth and the Sun, and um, it needs sort of it'll need adjusting of its orbit with you know just with its own kind of thrusters um, you know maybe every every twenty odd days or something like that um, because it's kind of you know because the, the Earth uh, and the Sun and the um, and the telescope are all sort of will always be fairly aligned. It's basically quite well shielded uh, from the sun. Um, you know, this L1 point is kind of fairly equivalent to L2, but, you know, it's, it's sort of it's constantly facing the sun, so that's kind of a lot trickier. But it is one and a half million kilometers from Earth, so it will take a while to get there, and if something breaks, unlike Hubble, they can't go and fix it. So that's another key difference. All right, I'm going to take a quick little detour about this, uh, this, this um, issue of the infrared, astron- of infrared uh, coverage for James Webb. So, like I said, Hubble looked at uh, shorter wavelengths. So here you have just a little view of the, uh, the, inf- the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, the visible light is just that tiny band, and that's the stuff we can see. It's just this tiny band in this huge spectrum, which goes from extremely high energy sort of gamma rays all the way out to kind of long wavelength radio waves. The infrared sits sort of just longwards of the optical and stretches sort of from about one micron to, uh, I guess, a, a, approximately a millimeter. But um, James Webb will cover from one micron to about, th- so about 28 microns. So just that kind of range next to the visible light. And there's very good reasons for that. So what do we see in the infrared? What kind of things emit infrared light? So it's stuff that's a bit colder than stars. Um, so not extremely cold, but things that are a bit that are cooler than stars. Stuff that's a bit dusty. So dust tends to kind of absorb energetic radiation, optical radiation, ultraviolet radiation, uh, and then that that radiation heats the dust, and then the dust kind of emits more emits that again in the infrared. Um, and then stuff that's really really far away as well. So it's incredibly important for studying the early universe. And I'll show you some examples of uh, of, of what I've listed here. So I really like this image. So this is a picture of the Orion Nebula compared um, with the infrared compared with visible. So that kind of illustrates the point. 
So the Orion Nebula is kind of a hotbed of star formation. There is an awful lot going on. There's a big nebula with uh, lots of lots of young stars that are forming. Um, and so, so this is the visible. This is the visible image. That's the infrared one. And you can see in the visible, you know, this is the sort of central cluster, which is extremely bright. And then, you know, the radiation that you can see, the visible radiation you can see, is all kind of concentrated around there. So it's extremely bright. And there's lots of these hot stars and stuff you can see. If you look at the infrared, it's almost, you know, you don't see that, that really hot light in the middle of, the, of that sort of bubble, but you can see all the stuff around it is being lit up. That's all kind of denser, more molecular material that's, you know, a bit colder still. Um, you don't see many of these kind of hot stars popping out. They don't, really, they don't really give off that much infrared light. But you can see sort of up here, in that sort of dark filament, you can see all these little dots, and those are all kind of young stars that are in the process of forming. Um, so that's just to kind of illustrate a bit what we see in the infrared rather than invisible. So we can really kind of see... This is just kind of summarizing it. So we can really kind of look into the birthplaces of stars and planets. And those, that is one of the kind of key science themes for the James Webb Space Telescope. This new field, well, relatively new field, is a study of uh, extrasolar planets. So we've gone now from detecting that they're actually there. And then we've also kind of directly been able to detect some of them. And the next step, what people are really working on now, is actually uh, being able to study their atmospheres. And we want to actually know what's going on on these planets and know what the temperatures are um, and, and see what kind of molecules they have in their atmosphere. And you know, w eventually, you know, we want to kind of see if we can find signatures of life on any of these planets. And again, the infrared is an incredibly good um, wavelength range to, to, look, to look at that because it's a lot of... Basically, when, when you uh, look at... Um, uh, look at the planet, so when it's going in front of the star, the starlight is being filtered through the atmosphere, and so you can see what kind of molecules are in the atmosphere just from what is being absorbed from that starlight uh, as it passes through the atmosphere of the planet. People are already doing that today, and it's, you know, it's kind of amazing that that's even possible. Um, but with James Webb, we're going to be, do, be able to do that really well. Another important um, area is the high redshift universe. So it's looking at the, the very early universe. So um, the universe around us is expanding. And everything, all these distant galaxies that we can see are all receding away from us. Um, again, that's something that you know, we've learned a lot about in the last sort of 20 years. And, or you know, actually much longer than 20 years, 100 years. <laughs> and... Um, and so the further away things are, the faster they're also receding from us. And the effect that that has on the light that we see is that it, the light gets stretched, as seen by us. And that's the effect called redshift. Um, so this, the light that's given off by the stars in all these distant galaxies, which is basically kind of vi the visible light, you know, like the stars we can see in our own galaxy, that, you know, because those wavelengths get stretched, that sort of, that light gets pushed into the infrared. And Hubble has made huge advances in that. So here, I'll just put up the picture again of the, you know, the, the ultra-deep field. Uh, it's got sort of some labelings in there um, of, of galaxies of extremely high redshift that have been found in this image. Um, and, and Hubble has really kind of sort of made huge advances in that. You can see sort of at the top, I mean, you know, it's incredibly noisy, these sorts of images. Uh, so the, a lot of these detections are fairly tentative. But just the fact that, you know, we've been able to find these galaxies. I mean, 
you know, at redshift of sort of eight and a half, and, and we have, you know, almost sort of 10 candidate galaxies at that distance just from this image, you know, the universe was sort of less than 10% of, of, of its current age, which was pretty amazing. Um, but we're sort of at the, at the limit now where Hubble's cameras don't go further into the infrared, um, so we can't sort of, we can't detect the light from these, from galaxies any, in the any, um, earlier universe anymore. So that's specifically why, you know, James Webb was sort of designed to be op infrared, uh, infrared optimized, that we can keep pushing further and further back into the early universe to find these very, very early galaxies. This is just, you know, a beautiful plot that gets you, you know, gets shown a lot, um, kind of demonstrates a bit of the history of the universe. Um, so right over there, we have the, we have the Big Bang, and then around about around about here, sort of 400 million years ago, you know, is when the first stars and galaxies started to form, and you know we've gotten really close to seeing you know some of the some some of these first galaxies with Hubble, but we really need James Webb, which is going to be more sensitive and more infrared sensitive, especially um, to to kind of really find these first galaxies and then learn how, what they looked like and how they evolved to uh, the galaxies that we see today in our local universe. So that's kind of really amazing science uh, with James Webb. So why don't we just do this from the ground? Why do we need to spend $8 billion sending this telescope into space? Um, basically, infrared astronomy is incredibly difficult from the ground because if you... So this is basically the, roughly the wavelength range that uh, James Webb's going to cover. And... Um, this kind of shows how much of the light can at those wavelengths can actually get through the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, one means that all the light can get through and zero means nothing. Um, so as you can see, we've listed some of the molecules there. So water absorbs infrared light, ozone does, CO2 does. Uh, so these are all like major molecules in the Earth's atmosphere and they, they basically absorb a lot of the infrared light. So there are huge parts of that wavelength range that you just can't, you can't even get the light. You know, you can build the best telescope you want, but you, the light just doesn't even get through. So for being able to study this whole kind of range, you really need to just launch a telescope into space. So that's why we're doing that. So just to summarize, James Webb's wavelength coverage and its size together are going to be immensely powerful and sort of completely unique. We won't be able to do anything like this on the ground. And that's why it's so important that, you know, that we built this telescope. A telescope is really just a light collector. A telescope doesn't actually kind of analyze data or record data. For that, you need to put instruments on your telescope. And um, that's what... Uh, and so I'll, I'll show an overview of the, the instruments on board James Webb now. And so I work on one of these, so I'll talk a little bit more about that one. Um, I'll kind of quickly zip through them, but of course, each and every one of these instruments are hugely complex and have also been under development for the last decade. Uh, by hundreds, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, so I'm not really doing these justice at all. So there is, uh, there's an instrument called NERCAM, which was completely uh, designed and built in the US by University of Arizona and uh, Lockheed Martin. And this is a, a near-infrared camera that will go from about one to five microns. Uh, and there's a nice picture of it on its test bench. Second is an instrument called NERSPEC, which was um, built basically by the European Space Agency, but with lots of, uh, lots of contractors in Europe. Um, again, there's a nice little picture of it. Uh, NERSPEC's kind of amazing. Um, it's incredibly sort of technologically challenging uh, because it's a spectrograph, so it will disperse light from astrophysical sources so that we can you know, study chemistry and dynamics and things like that. 
Um, but it will be able to do that for, um, for something like thousands of objects in, in the field of view at the same time. And the way it does that, it has these, uh, they're called micro shutter arrays. So it has these, and you can see them here, there's sort of four of them in the field of view. And they look a bit funny on there, but basically they're arrays of tiny little shutters that are all kind of, uh, you know, electromagnetically controlled. Um, and so that you can kind of open and close these little shutters according to where the sources are in your field of view. Um, it's very, very tricky, and they've had a really, really hard time to get that to work, but it, it does. <laughs> it does now work. Uh, so this is a huge, very, very ambitious instrument, um, but that's looking really fantastic. The fine guidance sensor and NIRIS, it's kind of one joint multifunctional instrument. NIRIS stands for the Near Infrared Imaging Imager and Slitler Spectrograph. That's right. Uh, that was the Canadian contribution to the observatory. So again, that will also cover the near infrared and is going to be... So the fine guidance sensor basically um, helps guide the telescope, helps guide observations for the other instruments. And then NIRIS is an instrument in the near infrared that's very much optimized for doing kind of for, for studying exoplanets. So again, uh, it's a very very challenging instrument. <coughs> and then fourth is the is an instrument called MIRI, which is what I've worked on. So MIRI was great. Uh, MIRI is built by a very large European consortium uh, in collaboration with uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab of NASA, which are based, who are based in California. I've just listed there all the institutes that were in the consortium. Uh, the names aren't that important, but it's just to show that there are many, and we were in 10 different countries, uh, a number of UK institutions. There was a European PI, Gillian Wright, who's, uh, who works at U UK Astronomy Technology Centre in Edinburgh, and we also had an American um, PI, uh, George Rieke, who's at the University of Arizona. And there you see a nice PR picture of Miri uh, before it was shipped to the US. Uh, you might notice Oxford is actually not a partner institute, so I was previously working in the Netherlands and in Germany and was a member of the project there, and I'm sort of continuing that here now. Some of the basics of Miri. Um, so it's the only one of the James Webb instruments that will operate... Um, in the mid-infrared wavelength range. So that's uh, from, fi from five microns onwards. So all the other instruments operate between sort of one and five microns, and then from there on, MIRI takes over and does everything from five to 28 microns. So it has many modes of operation. So a lot of these kind of uh, modes that, you know, NERCAM and NERSPEC do a little bit of, MIRI does them all. So it's quite a complex instrument. It's got lots of different functionality. Uh, we have uh, a regular kind of imaging camera, uh, we also have a very simple slit spectrograph, so just for, for do, taking spectra of sort of one single object, um, very simple. Uh, we have what's called corona, uh, coronagraphs in the um, in the imager, which is basically masks that can you know mask out the light from a central star to study uh, structures around stars or exoplanets around stars and things like that. And then we have a, a, a whole other part to the instrument, which is uh, an integral field spectrograph. So it's, this is a spectrometer, but I'll show you some, um, I'll show you some more sort of details of that. Because uh, it's kind of a, a really interesting technique that, again, is something that's, quite, that's fairly new. Uh, and that so far we've only really done on the ground. So this is going to be one of the first times that, that an instrument like this is actually being launched into space. Um, and... So MIRI was under development here in, in Europe for, for more than a decade. And a couple of years ago, in 2012, uh, it was all finished and accepted, and then we shipped 
instrument to NASA, uh, where it is now being tested at the um, Goddard Space Flight Center in, in Maryland, which is where all the instruments have kind of been brought together and assembled. Miri is the coolest part of James Webb. We like to think that uh, it's actually physically the coolest part of James Webb. Of the entire observatory, it's the only instrument that has any sort of active cooling. Um, so, yeah, so, so we have our own dedicated little cryostats, basically. Uh, we are the only, the only part of the observatory that has that um, because we are a lot more sensitive to kind of hot, you know, to background radiation. So we get to say that. Here's a little schematic overview. Um, as you can see, it's kind of it's pretty complex, but actually, it sort of fits on a table. It's not, you know, it's not very big because uh, this all has to go into space. So everything's designed to be light and compact. And so the the main imi the imager unit I mentioned, so the light will come in sort of from here, and there's some sort of some some first optics there. In here is kind of the imager unit with the coronagraphs uh, and that whole light light blue bit on the top. Those are the spectrographs. Those are kind of quite bulky. Because um, then some quite bulky optics that need to go into there, uh, and then and then you have these kind of hexapod, this sort of hexapod mounts to kind of bolt it onto the uh, the hardware that will attach it to the telescope. So that's what that looks like. The si the simple camera that we have on Miri, uh, there's a picture of our simple filter wheel. Uh, so it's basically you know a, a regular camera, but we have lots and lots of different filters for looking at different parts of the spectrum. Um, and then we have all these different, you know, these different coronagraph masks and everything to put in there as well so that we can study kind of circumstellar structures and planets and things like that. Um, and we have this kind of this, uh, simple low-resolution spectrograph. So that's a kind of, for just single compact sources, we just get a broad spectrum to have, like, it's really fantastic for doing a simple characterization of, of something. And that's really sort of optimized also for studying the atmospheres of exoplanets. And actually, here in Oxford, I'm supporting some work by uh, um, Joe jo Barstow, who's another postdoc, and some, some of her, her colleagues in the uh, atmospheric uh, physics group here in Oxford, to kind of do to kind of simulate how we will be able to uh, how we'll be able to use James Webb uh, and Miri in particular to study exoplanet atmospheres. So that's kind of you know the science community is really kind of getting involved in in figuring out how to use the telescope best and what sort of data analysis is going to be needed to get the best science out of this uh, observatory. So the spectrometer unit for MIRI, um, like I said, it uses a sort of, uh, it's called integral field spectroscopy, which is pretty commonly used in ground-based telescopes now, but it's quite a, new, quite a new technology. So basically it's a kind of clever technique that allows you to get the full spectral information but of your entire field of view. Um, so rather than have like one sort of point source or something that you, you get the spectrum of, you can just do it for your entire field of view. Um, and there are lots of different technologies to, do, to, to achieve that, but uh, what we do with, with for Miri is uh, we, have a, we basically have a little curved mirror that splits your entire field of view in little slices. It's called an image slicer, these little mirrors. And that then kind of aligns them along a slit and disperses the light. And then you have to kind of reconstruct the whole thing back together to get a two-dimensional, basically a three-dimensional cube. So you have, you have images, but you have lots of different planes of images. And each of these planes represents your object that you're interested in at a different wavelength. So it's a kind of amazing technique. So that's a picture of like one of these little mirrors that does that. That's, that's one of the mirror image slices. Um, 
So you can see every little, every little slice of the mirror is sort of tilted at a slightly different angle, and what that does is it kind of, you know, stri- you know it kind of rearranges your whole image and puts it all into a, into a line instead of a, instead of a square. And that just kind of illustrates what you then end up with, that you have different planes. So every plane is, is your image, but at a slightly different wavelength. And in that way, you can actually see, like really see the two-dimensional structure and how it changes with wavelengths. So how's Miri going? What, what have we been doing with this instrument? So it's been under development for a really long time. Um, we had, it was all assembled here in the UK, actually. So it was very much a kind of, uh, within Europe, the UK played a huge big role in it. And a lot of the work was done down the road here at the Rutherford Appleton Lab in, uh, in Didcot. Um, that's where the instrument was assembled and where we had test campaigns, first of the of test models and then also of our flight model. Um, and we had a huge long test campaign on, our, on the final flight model uh, in 2011, um, which was then followed by lots and lots of analysis by all of us in the team. Uh, and we had a big um, review at the European Space Agency uh, to, who that went over all our results and all our design documents and things like that. Um, to actually uh, kind of officially accept it from, from our consortium. And after that, um, it was, uh, we, had a, we actually had sort of a big celebration and a ceremony in London where uh, the, the instrument was officially handed over to NASA. And that's a picture from that. So we had a little model of Mary in a nice box to show to... There's lots of politicians and media there and everything. So. And then, because um, Mary's really small, it didn't have to be... You know, it was just put on, a, on BA... <laughs> BA, flight, BA flight to Dallas Airport uh, in America uh, and it was put in a box and shipped out to um, <coughs> there you see it being loaded into the, into, uh, the luggage hold <laughs> um, just on a, on, on, a, on a passenger flight um, but of course that's not the end of the story so Miri and, uh, Miri and all the other instruments have now been delivered to NASA although we were the first which we were particularly pleased about <laughs> Um, and uh, so but all the instruments are now uh, at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland so it's just outside Washington DC and there's been you know a number of test campaigns there already to kind of integrate all, everything together and slowly more, hard, more and more hardware sort of being added uh, together um, and so we've just finished a big test campaign there now just since like last week so I spent a few weeks there in the summer this is a big, the big vacuum chamber that all this hardware is being kept in during the testing. Uh, it looks really kind of steampunk and Victorian, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's really the fa- facilities there are really fantastic. Um, and once all these, te- once the spacecraft, uh, the telescope and the spacecraft are all ready uh, as well, um, all of the, all of this hardware, all the instruments are going to be shipped to uh, Houston, where they have where, to Johnson Space Flight Center um, in in, uh, in Houston. And there they've actually built the biggest cryo-vacuum chamber in the world ever, I think, to be able to fit the entire telescope and all the instruments in there. Um, I, should have, I should have put a picture of that in there. It's really, really impressive. Uh, and NASA have, some, you know, ama- have an amazing array of, of images and videos on their webpage, um, but they weren't all, they're not all kind of embeddable in presentation. Uh, okay, so I think I've said all of this. Yeah, so it's going to be... A completely amazing facility for astronomy. Um, and people, you know, it's quite exciting because we're now getting quite close to the launch dates. And so the science community is kind of really starting to think about what, you know, what science programs and what observations we're going to be able to do with James Webb. Uh, and it's really going to benefit all of astrophysics. And um, 
really, really excited because Hubble has made such a huge big difference to, to science, but also not just to the science community, but also just in terms of inspiring the public and like producing amazing images and things like that. And we're all really looking forward to doing the same uh, with the James Webb Space Telescope. And it's a huge feat of engineering and international collaboration. I mean, it is an, an enormous project and thousands of people um, have worked on it. I remember once I was at a big conference and I had, I had a gap of a few hours. I didn't have any, any talks to go to. And so I'm, I was looking at the program and there, w- there was a session on James Webb. So I thought like, oh yeah, I'll go to that because there'll be, there'll be people I know and they'll be talking about something that I know about. And I went into this room and there were about 250 people in this room probably. And I didn't recognize any of the words on the screen and I didn't know a single person in this room. And then suddenly I realized like, well, okay, it's an $8 billion project. You know, that's... That's what that feels like, <laughs> I guess. Every single person is just a teeny, tiny little part of this enormous big thing. So there has been criticism of the project. You know, it's, been, it's, over, it's a bit over budget and it's delayed. Um, yes, it's a lot over budget. But, um, you know, it's, still, it's, it's fantastic and it's going to make you know, a huge difference to, to, to all of us. And I'll just leave it there. Thanks.